And in fact, this morning, what I want to talk about is the theme of thanksgiving and thankfulness for us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving is not just a day that we set aside once a year on the fourth Thursday of November. It is for us a way of life. And I think it'll be encouraging for all of us to consider what the Bible has to say about this important theme the theme of thanksgiving. And we're going to do that by looking at a very familiar verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And so you can take your copy of God's Word and find your way to the final chapter of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll be looking at verse 18. I was talking with uh, Callaway last week, and he was noting the fact that If you look in the hymnal for songs that are specific about thanksgiving, kind of thanksgiving hymns, the hymnal actually only has a couple of hymns listed as thanksgiving hymns, which I said, well, it's probably because as Christians, every hymn that we sing is a song of thanksgiving, and I think there's truth to that. But it is interesting how of all of the major holidays that we celebrate, especially as Christians, it seems like Thanksgiving is the one that doesn't have as much special music written specifically for this holiday. However, one of the hymns that is listed in Hymns of Grace as a Thanksgiving hymn is the hymn, Now Thank We All Our God, which is hymn 433 in Hymns of Grace, in case you want to look it up when you get into the main service. But I mention that hymn because it was written all the way back in the early 17th century by a German pastor named Martin Reinhardt. In fact, if you think about Thanksgiving, right, Thanksgiving commemorates the coming of the pilgrims to the American colonies. The pilgrims arrived at Plymouth in 1620. And those who survived that first winter and then made it through the subsequent harvest celebrated with a feast in November of 1621, 402 Thanksgivings ago. And that's what we celebrate when we celebrate Thanksgiving as a holiday. Uh, According to the details I found online, there were 53 Mayflower survivors at that first Thanksgiving and they were joined by 90 Native Americans, members of a Native American tribe there that came together for that first three-day Thanksgiving feast. Probably not all of the you know, accoutrements that were part of your Thanksgiving, from the turkey to the cranberry sauce to the stuffing and everything else, but it is interesting to think about that. So, Around that same time, in the early 1600s, Martin Reinhardt was a pastor in a town in Germany called Eilenburg, and this was during the Thirty Years' War, which was the most violent war in European history prior to World War I and World War II. It was a tremendously devastating war, started as a religious conflict, but quickly became a political conflict. And as a result of the war, Eilenburg, the place where Martin Reinkert pastored, found itself overwhelmed with refugees, and he was trying to minister to these dear people. In addition to the just difficulties and challenges of war, In 1637, Eilenburg was hit with the bubonic plague, and the plague was so devastating that at times, Reinhardt was doing 50 funerals a day, which is, you know, just an amazing amount of death and devastation as a result of the plague. And it was personal for Reinhardt. His wife contracted the disease and died as a result. Now, why do I rehearse all of that from the Thirty Years' War to the bubonic plague to the loss of Reinhardt's wife? It was because it was against that backdrop that he wrote the words to that hymn, Now Thank We All Our God. 
which if you remember, it's not the most familiar hymn that we sing, but now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices who wondrous things has done and in whom this world rejoices. And I love those words given the backdrop because here you have a man widowed, overwhelmed, alone in ministry, trying to minister to refugees and to those who have been devastated by disease and death. And he sits down to write a prayer to God, and it is a prayer of thanksgiving and thankfulness. And I think that's appropriate and striking because believers are those who are marked by a heart of thanksgiving and thankfulness. As I said at the beginning, Thanksgiving is not simply a holiday that we celebrate once a year. It is for us as followers of Jesus a way of life. It is a way of life. It characterizes who we are, or at least it ought to characterize who we are. By contrast, unbelievers are those who are characterized by a lack of gratitude and a lack of thankfulness. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, when the Apostle Paul is talking about the downward spiral of culture and society, particularly a pagan culture and a pagan society, one of the things he says about unbelieving society is this, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. So if ingratitude is a characteristic of the world around us that fails to give thanks to God, and gratitude ought to mark us as those who have been redeemed, what are the implications of that reality for the way that we live day in and day out, especially at a time of year where it is easy for us to become so inward focused, even as Mark helpfully was talking through in, and I so appreciate what Mark was sharing with us about making sure that our families are outward focused at a time when we celebrate the Christmas season. Well, I think 1 Thessalonians 5.18 is such a helpful passage in helping us think through the implications of what it means to live out a heart of thanksgiving, the heart of thankfulness and gratitude that ought to characterize us as believers. This is a familiar text. It's probably a text that you have memorized and fact, probably a text that you memorized along with verses 16 and 17, right? Chapter 5, verse 16, rejoice always. It's a favorite memory verse of children because like Jesus wept, it's one of the shortest verses in the Bible. Rejoice always, verse 16. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. And then verse 18, in everything, give thanks For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Really, this verse outlines for us what a life of gratitude ought to look like as those who are followers of of the Lord Jesus Christ as those who have been forgiven and redeemed and as those who have the hope of eternal life. Now, our outline this morning, we're going to look at this text using three different headings. I want to begin by talking about the substance of the command here, the substance of what it means to give thanks. And then we're going to talk about the scope of it. And then finally, the significance. So the substance, the scope, and the significance of this command here in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, that we are to give thanks. We begin with the substance. What is it that Paul has in mind here when he commands 
his readers, in this case the church at Thessalonica, when he commands them to give thanks? Well, I think in order to answer that question, we have to start by asking, well, who is the object of the thanks that we are commanded to give? Is this a command for us to simply be thankful to other people? You know, when you go through the drive through or you stand in line at Starbucks and you finally get your drink or you get your order and you say, thanks, or somebody holds the door open for you and you say, hey, thanks, or you get something from someone and you follow through on writing a thank you card. Is that what Paul is talking about here when he says that we are to give thanks? Is he talking about expressing gratitude to other people on a horizontal level? You know, speaking about thank you cards, uh, I'm always reminded of my mom's faithfulness in that regard, specifically with respect to the fact that she did her best to train up her children to also write thank you cards. Me and my brother, I have one brother, and my mom was very faithful in encouraging us to write thank you cards. We were not very good students, but it wasn't my mom's fault. She was very faithful in reminding us of the importance of writing thank you cards. I always felt like it was unnecessary until I got a little bit older and realized that it's actually important. (laughs) But uh, my mom would make us write thank you cards for birthday gifts, Christmas gifts, other things like that. And my question to her was always, well, how long does it have to be, right? Because I had other stuff I had to go do. Um, There was, you know, games to play and things to, neighbors to play with and all this kind of stuff. And so it's like, okay, I got to sit down. I got to write this thank you card. And, you know, as a little kid, a thank you card feels like a term paper. So you're sitting down with this blank piece of paper and it's like, dear grandma, okay, now what's going to go in the substance of this card? And I finally got it down to, because she told me it has to be at least three sentences long. Your thank you card has to have three sentences. So I finally got it down to a formula. And uh, my formula went something like this, sentence one, thank you for whatever it was that I had received. So thank you for, you know, know, the, the new basketball. Sentence two, I really enjoy playing with it. Sentence three, thank you again for the basketball. Now can I go play? Um, Is that the kind of gratitude that Paul is talking about here? Uh, Well, the answer to that is no. As important as it is to express gratitude to other people at a horizontal level, to say thank you and to use your manners even in that way, as, as important as that is to write thank you notes and things, that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about giving thanks to the Lord. And we know that for a couple of reasons. We know that Paul's focus here is vertical rather than horizontal, in part because of the word that he uses. The word that's used here is a Greek word, eucharisteo, It's actually, uh, you you may hear in that the Roman Catholic term Eucharist. Eucharist is from this Greek word. It means thanksgiving. And unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church has taken a, a very good term and hijacked it and applied it to the Mass, which is an unbiblical practice. So they've taken a good term and ruined it. But the actual term eucharisteo means to give thanks. It's used 38 times in the New Testament, and every single time it refers to giving thanks to the Lord. So the word that's used here is a word that specifically refers to giving thanks to the Lord. Now, sometimes it's giving thanks to the Lord for other people, but it is always ultimately aimed at giving thanks to God. In fact, in the same letter of 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 1, verse 2, and again in chapter 2, verse 13, the Apostle Paul will talk about the fact that he gives God thanks for the Thessalonians, and he uses that same term of 
eucharisteo. So we know that this is a reference to giving thanks to God because of the word that Paul uses. But not only that, it becomes obvious that God is the object of the thanksgiving here because of the context. We go back to verse 16, rejoice always. Or as Paul will expand on that in another letter that he writes in Philippians chapter 4, it's rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. And then verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 5 makes it very clear that the focus is God-centered. Pray without ceasing. So it is joy-filled prayer. And then verse 18 that comes from a heart of thanksgiving. I'm reminded of what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, where the author writes, through Jesus Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. I love that, that here the author of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, talks about thanksgiving as a sacrifice of praise that we offer to God. And and of course, in the Old Testament, there was a sacrifice, an entire system of sacrifices, but specifically a thanksgiving offering that was given. And here you have the author of Hebrews saying in a New Testament church context, as believers, we engage in a a thanksgiving offering, a sacrifice of praise to God through the expression of heartfelt gratitude to Him. And and really, even looking at the way that verses 16, 17, and 18 in 1 Thessalonians 5 fit together, isn't it true that when our hearts are filled with joy and our minds are set on prayer— our attitude is going to be one that's characterized by thanksgiving. And vice versa, when our attitude is characterized by thanksgiving, we express that thanksgiving in prayer to God, and it then shows up in an attitude that is filled with joy and rejoicing. So the substance of this command is that we are to give thanks to the Lord and we do it as an expression of worship and as an offering of praise. And I think it helps in those moments when we're tempted to grumble or complain or get frustrated or become irritable. I think it helps to remind ourselves that a good attitude A thankful heart is not merely a way to exercise self-discipline or help other people in the car also have a good attitude or whatever the context might be. It is an act of worship. And when we think of it as an act of worship, it helps us understand that our thankfulness is an offering of praise to God himself. And we tend to think of our attitudes as only having horizontal relational implications. And here Paul reminds us that this is a vertical matter that we are to give thanks as an act of worship to our Lord and King. So that's the substance of this command. Let's talk then about the scope of this command. The extent, the scope. Well, Paul says right there, in everything, right? In everything, we are to give thanks. Paul doesn't give us an exception clause. There's no exclusion. There's no footnote. There's no Greek manuscript that has an alternate reading that has some sort of clause or parenthetical note that gets us off the hook for giving thanks in everything except for this or that category. We are to give thanks in everything. And I think it's quite amazing to consider the fact that Paul can tell the Thessalonians this in light of the background and backdrop to him actually writing this letter to the Thessalonians. 
So you'll remember from the book of Acts that Paul came to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. In fact, in Acts 16, on his second missionary journey, he and Silas went to Philippi. And in Philippi, Paul gets arrested and thrown in jail. He has compassion on a demon-possessed girl, casts the demon out of the girl, but the uh, people who were making money off of what this girl was doing, uh, as fortune-telling and these kinds of things, they get upset, and so they have Paul arrested, and Paul and Silas are thrown in jail in Philippi. You remember the story of the jail stay in Philippi because Paul and Silas were actually singing hymns while they were imprisoned, and then there's an earthquake, and Paul, through the circumstances there, is actually able to lead the Philippian jailer to faith in Christ. And Acts 16, 30 and 31 are two of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. The Philippian jailer cries out to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. From there, from Philippi, Acts chapter 17, Paul and Silas come to Thessalonica. And when you read in Acts 17 how things go in Thessalonica, it's not that much different than in Philippi. In Philippi, Paul is persecuted and imprisoned. In Thessalonica, the Christians, including Paul and Silas, are persecuted to the point that one of the brothers, a man named Jason, is actually dragged into the city square. There's a riot and a mob, and Paul and Silas are forced to leave. From there, they go to Berea, and then from Berea to Athens, and then from Athens to Corinth. And it's likely in Corinth, several months later, that Paul writes this epistle, probably the second epistle that Paul wrote after Galatians. Paul writes this epistle back to the believers at the church in Thessalonica. The reason I rehearsed that background is because Paul's coming both to Philippi and to Thessalonica and then eventually in Berea and even in Athens was characterized by persecution. He was met with great hostility, incredible affliction. The people at the church, those who embraced Jesus Christ in saving faith, were met with serious antagonism from the world around them. And you have in the midst of that kind of affliction and persecution and hardship, you have Paul commanding the Thessalonians that in spite of all of that and in everything, they are to give thanks. And then when you go through the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians itself, you find that even internally there were struggles and challenges. The Thessalonians had some false teachers who were denying that those who had died in Christ would be resurrected. Not only that, but you had some among the church who were uh, becoming busybodies and were leeching off of the generosity of the congregation. Paul addresses that both in this letter and in 2 Thessalonians. You had those who died, such that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul has to encourage the believers that those who've fallen asleep in Christ will be raised. So you have members of the congregation who are disobedient. You have members of the congregation who have died. You have false teachers who are threatening the church from within, and all of it within a context of an external persecuting society that is hostile to the gospel. And yet, in the midst of all of that, Paul can say to the Thessalonians, in everything you are to give thanks to the Lord. I think when we rehearse the context of those kinds of things, it's convicting, at least to my own heart, because I realize that my thankfulness (laughs) is often interrupted by things that by comparison seem so weak sauce compared to the challenges that Paul faced and that the Thessalonian believers faced, right? I I get frustrated or upset and begin to complain or grumble by things that would be rightly classified as 
first world problems. It's convicting for us to consider Paul imprisoned, persecuted, run out of town, time after time after time, writing to a congregation of beleaguered believers and telling them, in everything, give thanks. Now, how is it possible How is it possible for them to give thanks and for us, by extension, to give thanks in everything when life is hard? And I don't want to trivialize the genuine challenges that we face in life. And I know that there are those here who are going through times of genuine trial and real challenge. So how is it that we can give thanks in everything even when our circumstances are exceedingly difficult? Well, the answer to that is that our thanksgiving is not grounded in our circumstances, right? Our thanksgiving is not anchored in our situation. Rather, our thanksgiving is anchored in the hope we have in God Himself. And when our our thanksgiving is grounded in Christ rather than our circumstances, then we can be thankful in everything. I mean, think about what Paul has encouraged the Thessalonians with, even throughout this letter. In in Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, he encourages them with the reality that they were chosen by God. In verse 5, that they had received the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 9, that by God's grace, they had turned from serving idols to instead serve the living and true God. In verse 10, that they were in the love of God through Christ Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 12, that they had been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. Chapter 3, he encourages them that they have persevered in Christ. And then in chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, he encourages them with the reality that even those who have died in Christ will be raised. It's the hope of the rapture and the hope of the resurrection. The beginning of chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks about the coming day of the Lord, which is a reference to the great and terrible day of the Lord at the end of the tribulation period. But he encourages them that they will not experience that. And look at chapter 5, verses 9 to 11. Here Paul says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, a reference to the believers who have died in Christ, we will live together with Him. Therefore, verse 11, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. So think of all of these truths that Paul has rehearsed for the Thessalonians that they are elect, that they have received the gospel, that they are serving the living and true God, that they are in His love, that they are in His kingdom, that they are persevering in Him, that they have the hope of the rapture and the hope of resurrection glory, and that the wrath of God that will be poured out on this earth, they will not experience because God has not destined us for wrath. But through Christ, He has saved us as trophies of His grace and mercy and has predestined us for eternal fellowship with Him. So how is it then, a few verses later, after 1 Thess 5, 9-11, a few verses later in verse 16 that Paul can say rejoice? And how is it two verses after that in verse 18 that Paul can say, in everything give thanks? Because the momentary light affliction of this world, to borrow the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 
is producing for us an eternal weight of glory that is far beyond all comprehension. And when compared, the trials and tribulations and hardships of this life, when compared with the realities that are ours in Christ Jesus, those things seem like such small things. And our hearts are overwhelmed with gratitude and with thankfulness when we consider the difference between what we deserve and what we receive in Christ. I love chapter 5, verse 9, which we just read. We have not been destined for wrath. The wrath is what we deserve, but what we have received in Christ, verse 10, is that we will live in Him. So, we can be thankful. We can be thankful all the time. The Apostle Paul could be thankful. He might be falsely accused and imprisoned in Philippi. He might be run out of town in Thessalonica. He might be stoned and left for dead at Lystra. He might be shipwrecked multiple times. He might eventually be executed by an evil emperor named Nero but he can give thanks in everything because what is his in Christ far outweighs and outshines whatever momentary affliction he experienced in this life. And so we can say with Paul, yeah, in everything we will give thanks because our thanksgiving is not grounded in our circumstances, it is grounded in Christ. Well, that brings us then thirdly to the significance of this command. In everything, that's the scope. Give thanks, that's the substance. Now let's talk about the significance because Paul ends this verse by saying, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I think it's interesting how much time evangelical Christians, and I'm speaking broadly here, spend trying to figure out the will of God. There's books written about trying to discern the will of God, conferences, messages, all of those things, and it's, it's good, good things sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it's about trying to find some sort of still small voice or ecstatic experience or emotional constitution that confirms that this is the will of God, and, and none of those things are biblical. And in a broad sense, we could say that the will of God is that which is, and we're talking about the moral will of God here, that which is expressed on the pages of Scripture, all that God has revealed in His Word represents and reflects His will. And so in a broad sense, we could say, well, the will of God is that which he has expressed in his word, and when we live according to his word, we are living in his will. I remember a story from church history about a guy who was trying to decide, discern the will of God. This isn't in my notes. This is just one of those <laughs> rabbit trails. And uh, he was trying to figure out if he was supposed to marry this girl or not. And um, this was back in the 18th century. Uh, it was actually John Wesley, and uh, the girl's name was Sophie Hopke. But he was trying to decide if he was supposed to marry this girl or not. And in order to decide whether or not she was the one, he decided to cast lots, which was a horrible idea, horrible idea. And I know we have even some TMU students visiting with us today. When it comes to thinking through God's will and your future spouse, the casting of lots is not the way to do it. And it ended up being a disaster for him because when he cast the lots, the lots determined that he was not supposed to marry this girl, but he still really liked her. And when she ended up marrying somebody else, it just completely destroyed his life. But that was a footnote. So how do we find the will of God? We find the will of God by obeying the principles of His Word. 
But there are places in the Scriptures where Scripture actually designates a very specific application of what believers are to do in order to obey and follow the will of God. And this is one of those passages. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Uh, we see other places where this happens. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 is where Paul says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Another example would be Romans 12, 2, where the will of God is found in pursuing that which is good and acceptable and not being conformed to the lusts of this world. Uh, Ephesians 6, 6, which is a passage, a verse addressed to bond servants, bond slaves, and there Paul tells them that it is the will of God for them to obey those in authority over them. 1 Peter 2.15 and 1 Peter 4.19 note the fact that it is the will of God to do what is right, even in a hostile culture. 1 Peter 4.2, 1 John 2.17 both explain that doing the will of God stands in contrast with the lusts of the flesh. 1 John 5.14 states that if we pray according to the will of God, He hears those prayers. So that just gives you a, a sampling of places in the New Testament where the New Testament writer gets explicit about this is what doing the will of God looks like. So in a broad sense, to do the will of God is to walk according to the Scriptures. But in a narrow, specific sense, you have these places in Scripture where there are specific things that the writer highlights as this is an expression of what it looks like to walk according to the will of God. And I think it's interesting that there's not that many of those expressions, but here in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, we find one of them. And so we can say with clarity and with conviction that when we are expressing a heart of genuine thankfulness to the Lord, we are walking in His will. And when we are not expressing a heart of genuine thankfulness to the Lord, we are not walking in His will. I think the implications of that are significant. So we are to give thanks because it is God's will for us in Christ Jesus to do so. Now I want to talk a little bit about why I think Paul highlights that point with this command. Why is it giving thanks in particular that Paul highlights as being a specific expression of what it looks like to walk in and carry out the will of God. Well, I think part of it has to do with the fact that those verses that I referenced earlier, places where the will of God is specifically mentioned, they generally fall into two categories in the New Testament. One is in the category of sexual purity, that sexual immorality is outside of the will of God, and to walk in sexual purity is to walk in the will of God. And then the other has to do with submission to authority. That to submit to proper spheres of authority as believers is to submit to the will of God and to rebel against proper spheres of authority is to rebel against the will of God. And what's interesting is that Scripture links thanksgiving specifically to both of those categories. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, this is the sexual purity side of things. Paul says this, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather 
giving of thanks. Isn't that interesting that the opposite in Paul's mind of filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting, inappropriate conversations, inappropriate thoughts, the antidote to that and the antithesis to that is giving thanks. And then with regard to submission to authority, I think it's really interesting in 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 and 2 that Paul talks about the fact that we are to pray for our leaders and he says that those prayers are to be characterized by petitions and thanksgivings which are to be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority. And so we have from purity to politics, in either of those categories, thanksgiving is a key to walking in a manner that reflects the will of God. But if we were to look beyond that in the New Testament, we would find that thanksgiving has other benefits. Philippians 4.6 tells us that thanksgiving is an antidote to anxiety. You're familiar with that passage. Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 and 16 remind us that thanksgiving is a key to unity with other believers. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 notes that thanksgiving is a key ingredient to a proper prayer life, a consistent prayer life. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 says this, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it, with an attitude of thanksgiving. In Revelation 7, verse 12, we find that thanksgiving will be a key ingredient in our heavenly worship. And just to cite one Old Testament passage, Psalm 44, verse 8, tells us that thanksgiving is also a key ingredient to humility. If we are to be humble, we are to be thankful. And I rehearsed that list of verses and benefits because I think it's really interesting that Thanksgiving is presented in the New Testament not just as the antidote to complaining and grumbling, not just as the antidote to covetousness and discontentment, but it's presented as the antidote to things like anxiety or a stale prayer life or a lack of worship. It is a key ingredient in even having a proper attitude towards those in authority over you, and an antidote to sexual immorality, impure thoughts, and inappropriate speech. We don't, or at least I don't, always think about thanksgiving in that way, but the reality is it is impossible to simultaneously be actively and genuinely expressing heartfelt thanksgiving to God and at the same time be in sin. In that sense, and this is a bit of a silly illustration, but in that sense, I kind of think that thanksgiving is like the apple cider vinegar of Christian virtues. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with ACV, that's what apple cider vinegar, that's the abbreviation for it, not to be confused with the SCV, but ACV is, it's actually quite popular in in my house. Um, One article I found said this, these are the claims. Now, I I will admit I'm a little bit of a skeptic when it comes to ACV, but these are the claims. These are the claims that are made about what apple cider vinegar can do. It can lower blood sugar. It can reduce the risk of cancer. It can preserve food. It can deodorize things that smell. It can function as an all-purpose cleaner. It can help trap fruit flies. It can serve as a facial toner. It can clean dentures. It can reduce dandruff. It can kill weeds. It can whiten teeth. It can freshen breath. It can treat acne. And it can serve as a natural deodorant, among other things. 
Now, I'm going to add for the sake of the recording the disclaimer that I don't know if any of that is actually accurate, but I do know people who believe that that's accurate. The point that I'm trying to make today is Thanksgiving is kind of like that when it comes to spiritual virtues in the Christian life. What I mean is that Thanksgiving is in some ways like a spiritual cure-all. Whatever spiritual ailment or challenge or temptation that you are seeking to battle, Thanksgiving is your friend in that fight. Because you cannot simultaneously be genuinely thankful and be in sin. So to go back through our list, if you want to fight sexual temptation and impure thoughts, inappropriate speech, then put on a heart of thanksgiving. If you want to submit properly in whatever sphere of life the Lord has placed you under the authority structures that He has placed over you, develop a heart of thanksgiving. If you want to not get so mad every time you listen to political talk radio or read a political news website, try Thanksgiving. If you want to avoid anxiety, if you want to develop a consistent prayer life, if you want to worship in a way that reflects the worship of heaven, if you want to develop humility and put off pride, then give thanks. Because thanksgiving is at the heart of all of those things in terms of walking in a way that honors the will of God and puts off the lusts and desires and temptations of the flesh. Say it this way, the thankful heart is a heart that is content in God's provision, that rejoices always, that turns worry into worship, that rejects the false promises of sin and sees temptation for what it really is, that is humble and grateful, that expresses gratitude to God for others, and subsequently pursues unity within the church, that joyfully submits to governing authorities that God has sovereignly placed in your life. It is a heart that is consistent in prayer and exuberant in worship because it recognizes how unworthy we are to join with the redeemed in singing eternal praises to our King. All of those things are benefits that come from obeying this simple command in Ephesians 5.18. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I think it's interesting in 1 Corinthians Chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is talking about the children of Israel in the wilderness, and this is an example by contrast. And he lists four major sins that the Israelites committed in the wilderness and talks about the fact that they fell under the judgment of God for those sins. And one of those sins is idolatry, and we would all say, yeah, idolatry is a major, major sin. And another of those sins is immorality. And we would say, yeah, immorality, is a, that's, that's a major sin. That's not in Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins. That's one of the big sins. And then insurrection. Uh, well, yeah, okay. And they put God to the test. But it's interesting that in that list, Paul includes with those other three sort of big sins, the fact that the children of Israel grumbled that they grumbled against their circumstances, against the leadership of Moses, ultimately against the providence and provision of God. Which just goes to show you on the sort of contrasting side how ugly a lack of thankfulness can be and how serious a lack of thankfulness is to the Lord. So what are we to make of 1 Thessalonians 
Well, the substance of the command, give thanks as an act of worship and an offering of praise to God Himself, develop in your heart a consistent character of gratitude that is anchored not in your circumstances, but in the reality that you deserved His wrath and you will receive His grace. That's the substance. The scope is in everything. Because if that eternal reality is true, then whatever challenges I'm facing right now seem like momentary light afflictions. And then the significance, because to walk in thanksgiving is God's will for your life. It is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And what Christ accomplished on your behalf, verse 10, will be the impetus for us to join with all of the saints for all of eternity around the throne and sing praise to the Lamb, and we will do so with hearts of thankfulness. I hope this is a helpful reminder as we go into the holiday season, even to piggyback on what Mark said earlier, as we stop being so inward-focused and start being others-focused, The ability to do that at the horizontal level begins with the fact that we are thanking God at a vertical level, that we are giving Him all the praise and thanks as an act of worship, and then walking in that reality. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks today for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that we celebrate this Christmas season And it is because he took on flesh and became a man, and then having lived a perfect life, died as the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, so that all who believe in him might have eternal life. He is both our sacrifice and our great high priest, the one who mediates between us and you, and through his work has reconciled us so that we who were your enemies are now your friends, and we who deserved your wrath have now been given the hope of eternal life in Christ. And so what do we have to complain about? Nothing. What do we have to grumble about? Nothing. May our hearts be characterized then by thankfulness and thanksgiving. And when we get tripped up and we get irritated and complain, may we be quick to ask May we we be quick to repent and to seek restoration so that we might be characterized by hearts that are truly thankful. We are thankful, and we pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Have a great Sunday morning.